0: Good morning, Seven Mile Road. It's a joy to be with you. Now we come to that time in our gathering where we intentionally and gladly place ourselves under the authority of God through the preaching of His Word. I'm amazed that God would choose to use broken vessels like us to hold living water. And I think He does that so that we never get amazed at mere man, but that we set our amazement and marvel to the one who is truly marvelous. And so would you pray with me um, that our hearts would be anchored to him as I preach. So Father, thank you that you have not kept silent. Your word invites us to see and hear and respond to the gospel. And so God, we, we ask where else could we go? You have the words to eternal life. And so give us ears to hear this morning. Use this puny man, this broken vessel To hold living water. And so, would you use this text to enlighten our hearts, expose sin, and empower your church to mission? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, I grew up in a home where Jesus was decoration. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean, he was there, he was around, he was an accent on a side table, he was a prayer given at a celebratory meal. We had crosses hanging on the walls. If you go to a bookshelf, you'd see a couple of Bibles there. By default on a census, if you asked us, we were Christians. But our lives didn't center around God. Jesus was a part of my pantheon of superheroes. He was right up there with Superman and Batman, but he certainly wasn't God and Lord. For sure he died. I mean, I had accepted and heard the historical fact that Jesus was a man who had died, but he didn't die for me. All that changed in high school when on a youth ski trip I heard a clear and compelling articulation of the gospel. And when I got home from the mountains intrigued, I found one of those Bibles lying around and I started reading to get to know who this Jesus was. And for me, flannel board Jesus was replaced by the real Jesus, the one who had in fact died for my sins and so very shortly after my conversion, I felt this stirring in me, this calling to ministry. And at that point, I had no framework for what that meant. I, I didn't even really know what ministry was, but I knew that I wanted to give my life and service to the church. And so I started in my local church to serving wherever there was need. I remember sitting up in the AV booth, getting there early, making sure lights and sound were working. I remember working with some of our middle school youth. And over the next few years, that general calling on my life started to take shape. Again, I still didn't know much, but I knew that I wanted to be a pastor. And so I went to seminary, and during the first couple years, I first heard the term church planting. I thought it was weird at first. I didn't know that anybody could start a church, which is both awesome and scary. Um, But as I started praying and seeking the Lord, he started bringing direction and clarity to that calling on my life. And all the while, during these seasons, I would pursue the Lord in worship and prayer and the reading of God's word and studying what he had to say to us through the scriptures. And these spiritual disciplines started cultivating my relationship with the Lord. And it was during these times in drawing to the Lord that I would hear him speak and bring clarity. And don't mistake me, these years were not perfect. I wasn't some holy roller. I still struggled with sin and doubt and confusion and fear, but through it all, it was the Lord who kept me close. It's the Lord alone who's able to keep us from stumbling and to keep us near to Him. And so during seminaries, during this time that I met my wife, Andy, and got married, and if you've met her or spent two seconds with her, you know that she is one of the clearest graces to me uh, from the Lord. And so after seminary, we uh, hopped down to Austin, convinced that we were called to plant a church down there, and we got assessed. And during that assessment, my my calling to plant a church was confirmed, but I was told, not yet. Apparently, my timing wasn't right, which I couldn't come to grips with because it was like, you want to plant a church? I want to plant a church. Let's go do this. And it took a month before I was really able to read their assessment and to hear what these godly men were saying to me and how they loved me enough to tell me no. And so we continued uh, to press into the Lord and serve faithfully um, at a local church in Dallas and uh, we're just waiting and begging the Lord to speak again to bring clarity to what he wanted to do um, with my life. And so a few years passed and I came to Boston for the first time to attend a conference with the Gospel Coalition. And I remember, clear as day, getting off the plane, going down the escalator at Logan, and I, I felt a stirring again. And to be honest, at first I thought I was just hungry, because, you know, it was like 11.30, maybe go get some seafood. Uh, but I remember that that press wouldn't leave me. The whole time I was here, Here, I knew the Lord was stirring something um, in me. And so I began asking, Lord, is this where you would have me go? And so I came back to Dallas and spent the next few months and. Uh, bringing others, bringing the elders at our church, bringing my close friends in to help me discern my call and provide um, godly counsel. All of us wanted to know if the Spirit was calling us and compelling us to plant a church in Boston. And by God's grace, through a crazy story, I met Matt Cruz and uh, started getting to know uh, this church here in Melrose. And so after much prayer and God's confirmation, we were commissioned by the Village Church in Seven Mile Road to move to Boston and to plant a church, Lord willing, in Waltham. And so the reality this morning as I share my story is that while my call is specific, it's not unique. What I mean is that all believers in Christ are called to the mission of God. All believers are compelled to share the love of Christ because of his great love for us. You see, Jesus has already commissioned believers to go and make disciples. And while we all have this beautiful call on our life, it'll take shape in various particular ways. So there's this general call to make disciples that will get particular in the context of our lives. And our text this morning in the book of Acts helps us unpack that general call to make disciples. And we'll see how it gets personal and uh, particular. And so we're going to see that uh, when we faithfully pursue the Lord through beautiful ordinary means of grace, such as worship, prayer, and fasting, that God takes these spiritual disciplines, these efforts to pursue God, and he transforms them into extraordinary graces. And so up until this point in the book of Acts, ministry has been more spontaneous, right? Persecution has come and has scattered the church out of Jerusalem, Persecution comes and the church spreads out. Now in this passage, God begins to organize their efforts and direct them with a gospel, a laser-focused intentionality. And so the big idea in today's text is this. By God's grace, ordinary spiritual disciplines propel gospel mission. And so we're going to see that the church, when the church gives itself to the beautiful, ordinary rhythms of spiritual disciplines, God uses them to call us, compel us, and commission us for gospel mission. By God's grace, ordinary spiritual disciplines propel gospel mission. So let's look at this text uh, in Acts 13, and we'll see how God calls So remember the context, right? Back in Acts 11, the church in Antioch is birthed. Widespread persecution has scattered believers from Jerusalem, and now they've made their way north up to Antioch. And the persecution was meant to shut up and put out this new uh, 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 Jewish sect called the Way. But instead of cowering in fear, these early believers respond with courage to share the gospel, not only with Jews, but now to Gentile pagans. They didn't care that Antioch was deeply secular and opposed to the worship of the one true God. They believed with all of their hearts that the gospel was the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And the Bible says that a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. See, this is what true conversion is. It's a reordering of the most fundamental structures of your mind and your heart. What happens in conversion is that you literally begin to believe new things about God. You see him as what is ultimately true and good and beautiful. You see that he alone is great, glorious, good, and gracious. And not only do you see God rightly, but you start to see yourself rightly as well. You come to accept the reality that you are a sinner. You realize that you don't know what good and right is, nor do you truly desire it. And even if you did know what good and right was, at the gut level, you would despise it. Sin has wrecked humanity, and we're completely helpless to do anything about it. In fact, the Bible says in Titus that uh, apart from Christ, we are foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another as well. True conversion has the boldness and the humility to say, yeah, that's me. And then when that happens, the flood of God's grace washes over you. We believe that not only are we deeply flawed, but more than that, we are deeply loved by God. And then he gives us a new name, Beloved. No longer are we estranged orphans, but we are adopted sons and daughters. And this new belief births a new identity that causes us to turn away from sin and turn towards the living God. This is what's happened to these new believers in Antioch. And when the church in Jerusalem hears of this grace, they send Barnabas and Paul to go teach and encourage the new believers. And so now in Acts 13, we pick up the story of this church. Now we're going to work this text to see the big idea that by God's grace, ordinary spiritual disciplines propel gospel mission. And so we look at verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, And so the leaders of this church are described as prophets and teachers. So one of their uh, primary roles would have been to uh, instruct and pass on the teachings of Jesus and the apostles to this new church. And through this teaching, these new believers were steeped in the gospel, and they started working out all of the gospel implications. And when we look at this list of names, it might be easy to, or uh, we might be tempted to run past them, but this list of names is staggering when you consider the variety of backgrounds. I mean, you would expect, wouldn't you, that the leaders of this church would all be established Jewish names, but the gospel has shattered through ethnic lines, and the cosmopolitan population of the city is now reflected in the church's membership and leadership. And so we have Barnabas, Acts 11 describes him as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Wouldn't you love that to be said of you? His name means son of encouragement, and he was a Jew from the island of Cyprus. And then we come to Simeon, who was called Niger. Simeon is a Jewish name, and Niger is Latin for dark complexioned. And so what we know about him is that he was a black Jew from North Africa. And then there's Lucius of Cyrene, Lucius is in all likelihood one of the founding members of the church. Because remember, back in Acts 11, it was men from Cyrene and Cyprus who had the courage to come and preach the gospel. And now Lucius, one of those faithful gospelers, has established the church, and now he is one of its leaders. And then there's Menean. The Bible says that he was a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, don't get caught up or hung up on the word tetrarch. We don't have those today, a tetrarch was more or less like a governor of a region or or a province under Roman authority. And Menean was a lifelong friend of Herod. They grew up as boys, and so he would have had the same kind of social standing and wealth that Herod did. Now don't forget, this is the same Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. He mocked Jesus during his trial. He's the one who had James killed and Peter imprisoned. Just think about the mystery and sovereignty and grace at work here. These two guys who grew up together. Menean is honored in scripture as a Christian leader and Herod is remembered as a ruthless killer and one who was struck down by God and eaten by worms. Both are remembered forever in scripture. One receives justice, one receives mercy. And so by God's grace, Menean is rescued and transformed. And then there's Saul, right? We know him as Paul. He was a Pharisee. He was one of the early persecutors of the church. While he was on his way to Damascus, Jesus knocks him off of his horse, stopping him from wreaking havoc on the church, converts him, and meets him on the road. Saul is transformed, given a new name, and adopted into God's family. He's called to a joyful life of, as a servant missionary to lay it all out on the line. And like you and me, Saul is given a glorious and gracious opportunity to live a life void of boredom, filled with the Spirit, engaged on mission to build his kingdom. Now look with me at verse 2. It says, while they were worshiping with the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, don't miss this reality that they're engaged in devotion to the Lord. It says while they're worshiping and fasting, they're pursuing the spiritual disciplines. They're seeking God himself, and they're focused. And it's in this context, in their devotion, that the Holy Spirit speaks. They're communing with God, and this communing with him provides the intimacy for the spirit to move. And I want you to notice here that the leaders are also engaged in this devotion. You see, their position doesn't exempt them from seeking the Lord. In fact, leaders are not exempt. It's quite the opposite because you will replicate what you model. It's a principle that's woven into the fabric of creation. And so these faithful leaders are leading the way and modeling Godward devotion. This word for worship here is the same word that we use to get our word liturgy, what we're going through um, right now. It was used to describe the formal public worship of the church. And so I want want you to get a feel. They're engaging in something very similar to this right here. They didn't treat the Lord's Day casually or uh, consider gathering together for worship as a suggestion but not required. Gathering together is one of the central means of grace and the life of a congregation. It's not simply something that we do. It's literally a part of who we are as a family. So have you heard that old adage, the family that eats together stays together? You've heard that before? So listen to Miriam Weinstein. You may not know who she is, but she has dedicated her whole life to studying the power of family meals. This is what she writes. What if I told you that there was a magic bullet Something that would improve the quality of your daily life, your children's chances of success in the world, your family's health or values as a society. Something that's inexpensive, simple to produce, and within the reach of pretty much anyone. What Weinstein suggests is that the magic bullet is something as simple as a family meal, In fact, you can Google this yourself. Research indicates that a shared family meal leads to the strengthening of family bonds, the deepening of relationships, and higher levels of satisfaction among family members. I know it's wild that eating ordinary, average, every day with your supper is, uh, is linked to reducing teenage drug use and alcohol use. It promotes emotional stability. It lowers obesity rates and eating disorders. And that's not all. Weinstein argues that the regular rhythm of family meals will help children and families be more resilient, reacting positively to those curves and arrows that life throws our ways. And one of my favorite things about this research is there's no cap on it. If you eat a meal together once or twice a week, you'll reap some of the benefits. If you up that to three or four, you'll get more benefits. And if you up that to five or six, you get more benefits. My brothers and sisters, this is what gathering 52 weeks a year does for the body of Christ, the family of God. It's a no wonder why the pastor of, uh, uh, in the book of Hebrews writes these words. Let us not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Okay, let's keep working through this text, right? The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Paul for the work that I've called them. It's so clear, and I love it, that Luke does not consider the Holy Spirit as some impersonal force, right? The Holy Spirit is a person. Do you feel that? An impersonal force or some divine blob of of, uh, goodness doesn't speak. People speak. A person speaks. The Holy Spirit is a person. And so while this church is going about their normal worship service, this beautiful ordinary work and ministry, the Holy Spirit enters in and makes known his will to them. So you might be asking, well, how did the Holy Spirit speak? Was it audible Was it outward? Was it inward? Was it a still small voice? Did it come through one of the leaders or maybe one of the members of the church? Was there some kind of cosmic sign? I think this is one of those cases where Luke is intentionally being vague so that we'd be careful not to take something descriptive that happened in Antioch and make it prescriptive for all of time. Perhaps the Spirit speaks and moves in all sorts of ways, and our job is to actually believe that he still speaks and to actively be listening for it. And so not only does the Spirit speak, um, but, he, but he doesn't merely suggest. This is a command. The Spirit says, set apart for me. He's God. And when you're God, you don't suggest. How many times have I tamed the Spirit's leading and commanding into simply just good advice that I'll take into consideration? And my brothers and sisters we cannot approach God if he, as if he was merely trying to provide advice to further your mission. If God, think about this, is really all-powerful and all-knowing and good in every way, then this is not the God you ask for advice. This is the God you submit to. You do not invite God into your life as a personal consultant or your personal assistant. You submit to him as the Lord of your life. This is what the church models beautifully for us here in this passage, and we see that Barnabas and Paul are called for a specific gospel mission, and this calling is given by God. They don't derive it, they're on their own accord, that we all have been given this call to make disciples is clear in the scriptures, and the exact working out of that call is revealed in real time as we seek the Lord. And don't miss this as well in in the passage, that the Spirit calls, he says, set them apart for the work that I've called them, but he doesn't give them all of the details. That's wild. The exact nature is not fully revealed. And so where are they supposed to go? To what people are they sent? When are they supposed to go? The who, the what, the when, the where is not given in detail yet. And so for them, obedience to God requires an adventurous, courageous step of faith. And you remember that Paul, converted 15 years earlier, had received from the Lord the first glimmerings of this initial call that he would be used by God to bring the gospel to Gentiles. And at that time, he didn't know the full scope. He didn't know the full plan. He didn't know how all of the pragmatics were gonna work out. But he remained close to the Lord, being faithful to him every step along the way. And in God's timing, at the right time, the Lord gave him all the direction he needed. And the Lord tends to work this way in our lives, doesn't he? He gives us just enough of his plan to see what direction we're supposed to go, but not necessarily every single detail. I think if God were to give us all the details, I don't know if your heart's like mine, but I would would get to work busy working out all the details, and I would completely grow independent of God. But the work is not more important than our relationship with him. He wants us, longs for us to be tethered to him because he's concerned with our development and transformation. I don't know if you think of God this way, but he is not an, a disinterested taskmaster. He is not just barking out orders. He is a loving father. And so now we've seen this calling. Let's look at how these disciples are compelled Look at the beginning of verse 3. It says, Then after fasting and praying. So the Spirit has directed the church to set apart Barnabas and Paul for this work. What would you expect their reaction to be when they hear this? I imagine there's all sorts of emotions and thoughts that are flooding into their hearts and minds. Maybe fear starts to creep in and remind them that there's many out there who are opposed to the gospel, seeking to imprison them and kill them. Maybe there's questions and doubts about the lack of detail, and maybe that causes some hesitation. I mean, it's a natural human desire to have comfort and for a sure thing, and so maybe all of the uncertainty makes this a difficult thing to accept. What about the friendships, the bonds? They've been laboring among these people for for a year. Wouldn't it be hard to say goodbye to these friends who've become family? Are they really just supposed to say goodbye and leave? I'm sure they felt the weight and responsibility of the call. And because of that, the Bible says that they turned right back to those spiritual disciplines of fasting and prayer. In the midst of uncertainty, they turned to God. Their reaction to the call and all that it brought with it was to fast and pray. When looking at this passage, I thought, why would they go back there? Weren't they just doing that? Hasn't God just spoken to them? The answer lies in the reality that God himself invites us in to test the Spirit. So as we feel the Spirit speaking, we get to discern that call on leading of the Lord in community through fasting and prayer with others. They invite, Paul and Barnabas invite the church into that process. And so we see the church gathering around them to intercede. And so what happens when we are not pursuing the Lord through these spiritual disciplines? The short answer is this, we are unable to hear him and connect with him. Disconnected from God, we will listen to all sorts of other things. Our attention is stolen by a thousand other things. And so maybe you're concerned with the stock market or the, the growth and progression of your 401k. Don't we all want to keep up to date on what's trending on Twitter and Facebook? We want to keep up with the Kardashians and be uh, in, informed in the latest on the Deflategate scandal. We have notifications on our apps that are constantly demanding our attention, telling us all the things that we're missing out on. Perhaps it's simply just getting caught up in just the everyday grind of life. Maybe from the first sip of coffee to the hitting of the pillow at night, the demands of everyday life are constant and they keep us sufficiently distracted from God. In our day and age, it's a no wonder why we have spiritual selective hearing. Spiritual disciplines are a gift from God to help us slow down, recalibrate, see the Lord. The pastor in Hebrew says it like this. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Brothers and sisters, worship, fasting, and prayer brought this church to a place to hear God's call, and now worship, fasting, and prayer will help them discern and be compelled to obey God's call. And through these disciplines, the Lord ministers to their hearts, right? When they enter into God's presence, what happens? Well, we're reminded that he's for us. So who could be against us? In God's presence, we know that his paths lead to righteousness and life. In God's presence, we come to realize that the worst thing that could possibly happen to us has already happened. You see, for these believers, the worst thing that could possibly happen was not having people reject them or being imprisoned or even being martyred for the faith. The worst thing that could possibly happen to anyone is standing before a holy God facing his judgment and wrath for sin. But in Christ, that has already happened on the cross. Believer, all of our sins have been forgiven and the judgment we should have faith has been executed on Jesus. He took what we deserved. And in the presence of God, they realized that in Christ, not only has the worst thing happened to them that could ever happen, but the best thing has already happened for them in Christ because they have fullness of joy and every spiritual blessing they could possibly desire. They realize that in Christ their inheritance is kept in heaven so it could never be defiled or destroyed. And through these spiritual disciplines, their lives are anchored to the living God to propel gospel mission. He uses these disciplines to change our hearts so that we are compelled to respond when the Spirit leads. Intellectual assent, thinking that it's a good idea, is not enough. Having some sense of duty that it's your job as a Christian to do that will not be enough. In order to pursue God's call on your life to make disciples, you must be compelled by the love of God. And you get there through the graces of spiritual discipline. So now let's look at how they've been commissioned. We'll see the end of verse 3. And it says, after praying and fasting, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So now they are assured of God's call. They're assured of his, uh, that, he, that they've, he's compelled them to obey it. Now the church lays their hands on them to send them off. The church lays their hands on them as a sign of commissioning. They're set apart for God's work and the laying of hands is an act of blessing and it's a commendation that they've received the grace of God and they should go in that same grace. It says, we are in this with you. We are with you together. And the Spirit sends them by instructing the church to do so, doesn't he? The Spirit says, send Barnabas and Paul. And then the church sends them out in obedience to the Spirit's command. I love that the Spirit works through the church, and this is so critical. You see, there's a tendency in our day to, uh, to move towards individual, individualism, to think, I've heard from the Lord. I don't need anybody speaking into that. I don't need anybody helping me discern that call. I'm just gonna do it on my own. Don't try to do that. Invite the body of Christ to confirm God's calling on your life. And this passage also protects us against institutionalism, where the Spirit can operate without a clue or a thought to the Holy Spirit and just do things on their own accord to make their name greater, to build their kingdom. The Spirit works through the church to propel gospel mission. And so that church is able to commission Barnabas and Paul, not of their own leading or desire, but because the Spirit has initiated and birthed and spoken into this call a healthy church is able to send its people out, not only to the ends of the earth, but right here in Melrose as the church is devoted to God through worship, fasting, and prayer. If the church neglects these disciplines, we are not in a healthy place to send people out. This point is simple and straightforward. Without connecting to God through spiritual disciplines, the church is not in a posture to send anyone out in a healthy manner will be a train wreck sending people out if we're not pursuing the Lord. And so let's remember our big idea. By God's grace, ordinary spiritual disciplines propel gospel mission. So now that we've seen this, let's apply this truth. This is not a story of some super pastors and super missionaries. If you think that, you've missed the point. The reality of the Christian life is that it is one that is inherently called Compelled and commissioned to gospel mission. That's for all of us. We are called by the Father because we have been adopted as sons and daughters into His family. And when you're a part of a family, you adopt its identity, its purpose, and its mission. See, the Father is already on mission and He is calling sons and daughters to participate with Him. And as we've been adopted, the Bible says that He's also transforming us into the image of Christ, and this is a daily beautiful work of the Spirit happening um, a little bit by a little bit each day. You are becoming more and more like Jesus, who came to seek and save the lost, to serve rather than to be served. And so what's happening is, is that day by day, we are being transformed into servants of God, and as we are renewed and transformed and changed, our hearts will be compelled to joyfully and gladly participate in God's mission. And now the Spirit is today sending us out into the world to make disciples. And in our context, in and around Boston. That's, that's what Paul and Barnabas did. They were sent out to make disciples. The details and the specifics of their life uh, are for them, but the details and specifics of our life are for us This sermon will be an utter failure if you leave marveling at what Paul and Barnabas were called to. It would be a colossal waste of our time if you're merely just encouraged at the fact that my family has moved from Dallas to Boston to plant a church. The win for today, and my hope and prayer for you, is that you would leave here marveling at the reality that God has called you to join him in making disciples. Think about it. The all knowing God, the all powerful God, devised a plan to reach the world, and you are a part of it. He could do it so much more efficiently and perfectly without us. So the question is how are you working out God's call on your life to make disciples? Now, for some, and I'm just seeing your faces right now, you're hard at work and you're bearing fruit. Praise God. For you, the application is to be encouraged that you are appointed in the right direction and to keep pressing in the Lord and building his kingdom. I invite you, share your story with us. Help us who are still learning how to work out this call of God on our lives. And for some, you may be struggling with the cost of discipleship because it is hard labor. And maybe your heart is just simply not in it. And so for you, today's text says return to the Lord through His spiritual disciplines. He is not far. He is near. And first and foremost, this is simply just to get your heart right with the Lord. I'm not even talking about making disciples. If you are far from Him, seek the Lord. And in His timing, He will make His calling clear and compelling on your life. And He will give you the courage to walk in obedience. Resist that American tendency to do this on your own, bring others in. Our gospel communities are perfect environments for you to work out the call of God in your lives because the Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. Spiritual disciplines drive us to God, to be called, to be compelled, and to be commissioned. And by God's grace, ordinary spiritual disciplines will propel gospel mission. Let me pray for us. Father, you have invited us into an unbelievable calling. I'm amazed that you would use us, that you would invite us into such a work that is so near to your heart, like redeeming the lost. And yet, God, because you've invited us into that, our lives aren't purposeless and meaningless. They take on shape and meaning and purpose, and joy. And so Father, I pray that you would take this heart and uh, take this passage and apply it to our hearts, that we might be sent out courageously, boldly on mission to provide a clear and compelling witness to the people of Melrose, of your son Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.